will, if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to the second epistle of John, or second John. According to Ligonier's 2020 State of Theology survey that was conducted by Lifeway Research and actually won't be due or isn't due out in full until Tuesday, um, but the little snippet we've received said that 30% of evangelicals believe Jesus was a good teacher and nothing more. One-third of evangelicals believe that Jesus was a good teacher and nothing more. They also found that 65% of evangelicals believe Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God. Now, we hear those statistics and become alarmed. Uh, We become alarmed as if... This is something new, but the reality is it's not. Unfortunately, it's not new. Back in 2018, the same group found that only 42% strongly believed Christ's death on the cross was the only sufficient sacrifice that could remove the penalty of sin. In 2016, only 39% of evangelicals strongly believed that Jesus was both completely God and completely man. And back in 2014, only 42% believed that he, he being Jesus, would return to judge the living and the dead. But this isn't just a 21st century phenomenon, as our text makes clear tonight, there have always been professing Christians who don't confess the truth about who Jesus was and is. But our text also makes it clear that the solution is the same now as it was then. In the words of Stephen Nichols, president of Reformation Bible College, he said, it's clear that the church does not have the luxury of idly standing by. This is a time for Christians to study Scripture diligently, engage confidently with people in our culture, and witness fearlessly to the identity and saving work of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Or we could use John's own words from our text tonight, and rather than stand idly by, this is a time for the church to walk in truth and in love. It is time for us to walk in truth and in love. In our text tonight from 2 John, we have two points that I've already mentioned to you, or at least I told you has changed in the back of your bulletin. The first is the recipient of the message, and the second is the content of the message. The third point that is included in your outline, but that I'm not going to refer to tonight, I'm going to move to next week because we have the luxury of preaching both 2nd and 3rd John back to back, and John basically ends the letters the same way, and so I'm going to take, for time's sake, that third point that I would have covered tonight, and I move it to next week and combine the two. I know that's a little out of the ordinary, but I'm taking liberty to do that. 
Uh, but anyway, let's, let's pray before we begin. Uh, Father, we, we come now to, uh, to proclaim Your Word, Your Word that is eternal and infallible and inerrant. And we believe through it, not only do You desire, but You, in fact, do grant to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We believe your, your Word, both Old and New Testament, from beginning to end is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. And you use it that we might be complete and fully equipped for every good work. So would you, in these moments, by it and your Spirit, would you challenge us and strengthen us and encourage us and sanctify us? Use me as you see fit, in Jesus' name and for the sake of His church, I pray, amen and amen. So let's begin with first the recipient of the message in verse 1. John says this, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but I also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and in love. So having entered the twilight of life, John has moved to Ephesus, and it's a great location or even a convenient location from which he might, as the last living apostle and the patriarch elder, it's a place where he can provide supervision to the younger elders within the particular province. And it was there that he wrote his first epistle right on the heels of the gospel so that he could apply the gospel, but also to provide um, or, or to combat uh, Gnosticism. And we'll talk about more about what that is in just a minute uh, but that Gnosticism was gaining ground within the area, and he wanted to combat that. And it's also from this location in Ephesus that he wrote his second letter that we'll cover tonight and his third letter that we'll cover next week. And unlike the first letter, which was written for the purpose of being sent out uh, to other churches, uh, these two letters, one commentator called a matched pair of letters that, was, that were both more specified and personal. And the domestic language that he uses within this letter in particular, uh, which was common uh, with, with other New Testament letters and writers, but you take that as well as the plurality of the little pronoun you throughout most of the letter, and that leads most to believe, though there are a few who want to debate it, but it leads most to believe that this letter, that the elect lady here in Second John is a specific church and the children are its members. And due to the times in which they lived, uh, this metaphor would have been uh, used to provide anonymity for the church and John as well. And regardless of what church or what specific church it was, it is obvious that John loves it a great deal. He loves the people of this church a great deal. He says he loves them in truth or sincerely. And he says he isn't alone in that love for them. Others who know the truth or whose faith is in Christ and who believe the gospel to be an absolute objective, unchangeable reality, love them as well. And that love for one another exists 
because the truth or Christ himself abides or dwells with them and will be with them by his spirit forever. And in verse 3, he makes it clear that despite the the differences between them, despite the distance that's between them, and despite the trials that are going on around them and that they find themselves in, they as believers are all benefactors of the Father's grace and mercy and peace that is all theirs in Christ. It's because of their because of their relationship with the Lord Jesus and, and all of those things, that, that peace and that grace and that mercy will be exhibited and will be evident as they walk both in truth and in love. Now, as I was meditating upon this greeting this week, I, I thought of all the letters that we've covered. We're coming up on our second anniversary and it was a little nostalgic and, um, and we've covered Ephesians and Galatians and Hebrews and Philemon and now 2 John. And in each and every case, there was a love and a great affinity between the writers of those letters and the recipients to whom they wrote, as well as those readers themselves, between the readers themselves. Their relationships, as we read, they were not casual, but they were deep and meaningful and significant They weren't constrained by location, they weren't constrained by occasion, but they appeared to transcend the distance. And they were strengthened over time and across the different experiences that they all shared. And the ties that bound them together, they weren't frayed, uh, they weren't loose, but they were deeply intertwined and they were reinforced through appreciation and praise and encouragement and care and concern and correction and even warning. And that which provided, of course, the foundation upon which those relationships were built and and that which provided the impetus behind that maintenance of them and the strengthening of those relationships was, of course, the Lord Jesus and his gospel. He was behind it all. And I believe it's safe to say that while John purposefully described this church as the elect lady in order to, well, for anonymity's sake, I think the people who were a part of that church to which he wrote were anything but anonymous to him. He knew them, and they knew each other. Uh, He knew their strengths and weaknesses. They knew one another's strengths and weaknesses. They knew their sorrows and their joys, their successes and their failures. It's, I, I think with confidence I can say that they weren't able to hide behind any kind of complexity of illusions or facades that they might attempt to create to avoid or protect themselves from the inevitability of human disappointment that would arise or occur due to selfishness and self-centeredness that, that wreaks havoc even in the midst of, of the closest of relationships that we hold dear. But the risk, the risk that was associated with the vulnerability 
that they were experiencing among one another was worth it. Actually, it paled in comparison to the joy that was theirs in Christ. And brothers and sisters, my thought this week as as we approach particularization in October, as we approach our second anniversary, and as we approach particularization and are established formally by our presbytery in this community as a church, my hope and my prayer is that all of what I've just said would be said of us as well. It won't be easy, but it will, it will glorify God. It will exalt the Lord Jesus. And it, of course, will be for our good. And it will be for the good of those who aren't even here yet. As we pre- prepare for the Lord to bring others our way. Well, that brings us to the content, the second point, the content of the message. The content actually includes four things. Again, you need to mark through those two points under point two. There are four things here. One is he has a commendation for them, an exhortation, an admonition, and an instruction. All right, a a commendation, an exhortation, an admonition, and an instruction. First in verse four, the commendation that's present. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. Now, he begins by commending them for the fact that there are some within the body there in that church whose lives reflect the truth that they profess, right, the truth of God's Word that they profess to believe and proclaim. They aren't, they aren't maintaining this cold, dead orthodoxy but are exhibiting a warm and living orthopraxy. Very simply, that means that they are believing and practicing the right things. In the words of James, they were doers of the word and not merely hearers of it. Their faith was a living faith because it was producing good works. And John is quick to point out as he says that that this is how it should be because the Lord has commanded that. This is something that is expected. He expected it of them. Others expected it of them. They expected it of others. They had learned from the very beginning of their Christian life that they were, in fact, believers. But they were also to be obedient followers. As servants and disciples, they were to be, they were to emulate their master teacher, Jesus. And because they were doing that, John says that he rejoiced greatly because of what he knew was going on. So he commends them for that. Secondly, he, he points out an exhortation, or he provides an exhortation. Look at verse 5. He says, and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I was writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For John, we've already seen truth is vitally important, but love was as well. Love was just as important. He, like Paul, believed that truth wasn't to be maintained at the expense of love. 
And so he encourages the church as a whole to, to love one another. And notice he makes it clear that this isn't just his own idea. It wasn't something that he simply dreamed up. Uh, he didn't even go to Presbytery, and they didn't have a, pre, uh, a brainstorming session and decide to go back to their churches and say, hey, why don't we tell them to love one another? This was something that had been commanded from the very beginning. It was something that the Lord had, had said they were to do. It was something that was an essential part of their lives as Christians. So really, if they were to continue to walk in truth, they needed to walk in love because walking in love, loving others, was in fact a commandment. It was truth. The Lord Jesus had said, love one another as I have loved you. Love your neighbor as yourself. So John adds to that, in case you were wondering, he says, love involves obedience. Because love, is, love involves walking in the commandments or fulfilling the commandments that we've been given. So he's communicating, what he's communicating is that loving one another isn't merely a matter of warm affection. Right? It isn't just a matter of having warm affection for one another Loving one another involves desiring and seeking to do that which is in the best interest of those around them and putting the needs of others before their own. And one of the best ways of doing that was to do what the Word of God instructed them to do. In other words, the best way to love one another was through their obedience to the Word of God. And so, to walk in truth meant they needed to walk in love, and to walk in love meant they needed to walk in truth. And so, the two were inextricably linked together. It wasn't an either or, but it was a both and, because truth without love is cold and lifeless, but love without truth is detached and empty. They need one another. His third point is admonition. In verse 7, he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in this teaching has both the Father and the Son. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, he was writing because of this rise of the heresy of Gnosticism that had been gaining ground and needed to be combated. And Gnostics were this group of spiritual elitists who prided themselves in a special spiritual knowledge a knowledge that only they had. And in the words of verse 9, they had gone on ahead and were not abiding in the teaching of Christ. So basically he's saying that they believed they, more so than others, had moved beyond the gospel to deeper things. Right? They had what it took. They didn't need the gospel anymore. They were delving into deeper spiritual things. And so they considered themselves advanced teachers 
They weren't, they weren't sticking to or contending for the faith that had once been all, once for all delivered to the saints, in the words of Jude, that we'll look at in a few weeks. And one of their major ideas was that matter was evil. And it wasn't created by God. So therefore, he says, John says in verse 7, that they rejected the idea that Jesus Christ was the eternal Son of God who took on flesh. So basically what they're doing is that they are rejecting and attempting to explain away the incarnation. One commentator even said that the language that John uses here may suggest that the heretics were taking the logical next step as well and were denying the personal return of the Lord Jesus at the end of the age because both of those beliefs stand or fall together. And of course, this was the exact opposite of what John knew to be true. Right? John knew that Jesus was the eternal Son in the words of his gospel, who was with God and was God and in the beginning with God and who took on flesh and dwelt among us. He agreed with the Apostle Paul who wrote that the eternal Son had emptied himself and by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death to the point of death, even death on a cross. John agreed with the writer of Hebrews that we studied earlier this year, and he, he knew that Jesus was the radiance or is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And what the Gnostics believed and confessed about the incarnation was so contrary to the truth the exact opposite of the truth that John called them deceivers and antichrists. And then he went so far as to say in verse 9 that if anyone believed them, believed what they taught, if they themselves who believed it and taught it, anyone who believed what they taught did not have God. In other words, they, they weren't Christians. And that's because they rejected the only hope that they had. You see, if Jesus wasn't both totally God and totally man, his work on the cross was insufficient. Because mankind needed a divine sacrifice. We needed a divine sacrifice that could pay the eternal debt that we owed to an eternal and holy God. But we also needed a human sacrifice that could serve as our substitute because the blood of animals was insufficient. And so we needed a human sacrifice that could die in our place. So it was only Jesus who was both completely God and completely man who was able to suffer the judgment that we deserved in our place thoroughly and completely to the end. And he did. So therefore, in verse 8, John said it was Jesus, the God-man to whom those in the church should look. Look to Jesus. And he says, watch 
he says to them, watch themselves. They needed to watch themselves to make sure they remained on course, that they continued to hold on to, uh, to maintain their grasp on that which was true, that which they had been taught concerning the teaching about Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. Because apart from him, there was, there was no and is no possibility for salvation. Because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the one who alone was God in the flesh. And then finally in verse 10, he gives a specific instruction. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Very simply, he instructs them to refuse to welcome false teachers into their church or into their fellowship with them in any way. And to be clear, he's not talking about non-Christians who might visit. He's not talking about Christians who might visit and then have the nerve to complain about something the preacher said. Um, he also is not talking about or is not negating what we saw in Hebrews 13 in terms of our hospitality that we are to show to others. What he's doing and what he's talking about is professing Christians who claim to be fulfilling some sort of, potentially fulfilling some official role as a pastor or a teacher or if they weren't doing that, they were for sure claiming to have a new spiritual insight of some kind. They had some more progressive take on some historical doctrine that had been handed down and, um, and had stood the test of time. And for sure, he's talking about anyone that believed and proclaimed something which was unbiblical and heretical. And none of these people should be given a platform or the opportunity to preach or teach in the midst of the congregation, and I would even add in small groups. And he didn't mince words about the consequences if they did. He said if they allowed it to happen, they would not only open themselves up to that false teacher and the false teaching. But by doing so, they would be endorsing what the teacher was teaching and in a very real sense, partnering with him in their deception. They would be partnering in something that was contrary to the gospel, which is why John says it's, that's nothing but evil works. Brothers and sisters, this is, of, of course, very timely for us today. It's very timely because we're in the midst of our own battle with, with a type of modern-day Gnosticism or with modern-day Gnostics. If you have ever personally encountered or listened to a podcast or read a book or an article in which there there are those that you're speaking with or listening to have had mystical encounters or if they've had special words of knowledge or any type of secret and new teaching 
or if they have pitted reason and logic against faith, and if those things were also kind of venerated or championed and revered in some way, you've encountered some form of Gnosticism. If you've ever personally, again, had a conversation, listened to a podcast, read a book or an article in which someone emphasized that the Lord had been telling them things and the common phrase was, God has told me, you've encountered a form of modern-day Gnosticism. If you've been in a Bible study and there are multiple and even conflicting interpretations or opinions regarding the meaning of a particular passage, and no one's willing to say that one or two might be false or is false, you've encountered some form of modern-day Gnosticism. If you have been in a Bible study and the leader asks, what does this passage mean to you? You have you've encountered a modern form of Gnosticism. And it is true that we need the Spirit to illuminate the meaning of a text for us to understand what it says. But that interpretation will will not be new. It will not be different. It will especially not be contrary to an historical interpretation of the text. And it won't be arrived at apart from reason and logic. And it won't be arrived at apart from the community of faith. Mysticism, relativism, relativism may be chic right now. It's kind of fashionable. But it is in direct opposition to the objective and absolute truth of Scripture. Mysticism may be this distinct and um, exciting feature of spirituality today. But the individualism and the irrationalism that accompanies it makes it an enemy of biblical truth in general and the gospel specifically. And I do want to be a little more specific. So based upon these statistics that I read at the beginning, if, if you have heard a professing Christian personally, again, or via conversation or by some other means, if they reject absolute objective truth, if they, if they reject the objective reality and presence of sin, if they object to the inevitability of judgment, if they reject the need for repentance and forgiveness, if they reject the person and work of the incarnate Son of God who is the Lord Jesus Christ, if they reject the work of salvation that is exclusively available in Him and in Him alone, and if they even reject the inclusive nature of salvation that is available to anyone and everyone who, can, who calls upon the name of the Lord, they are a false teacher. And 
And there are many other examples, of course. Any deviation away from the objective and absolute truth of God's Word is a direct result of sin and is very simply rebellion against the Lord. And combating this is, is really hard today. And it's hard depending upon the topic because one of the most popular tactics, because unfortunately it's one of the most successful tactics that's being utilized, is to apply pressure to force agreement with or alignment with false teaching, and they do so by accusing anyone who disagrees as being unloving. But John says this is not the case. Because truth and love are not opposing ideals. They're inextricably linked. The reality is we exhibit love when we embody truth and when we speak truth and when we maintain and proclaim the truth, we are loving God, we're loving one another, and we're loving our neighbor. And that's not to say that there aren't pitfalls for us to avoid because there are. And we talked about this back in our study of Ephesians during our first year. We need to avoid the self-righteousness and the arrogance that we are susceptible to. We're all susceptible to it. We may possess and we may speak and we may exhibit the truth but we must exercise caution and not fall prey to the allure of believing and promoting ourselves to be the elite possessors and the elite speakers and the elite exhibitors of truth. Because when we fall prey to that allure and find ourselves in that elite position, we begin to express justifiable disdain for those who disagree with us, who we dislike or find frustrating, and we do it in a very, very abrasive manner. And that's not what we're called to do. Our goal is not to communicate that we are the possessors of truth. We're called to love God and love people. In other words, there's a big difference between promoting ourselves as possessors of truth and loving others in a way, both gently and compassionately, as we share the truth so that we not only gain an audience, but we maintain an audience with those who desperately need that truth. And you know... Sometimes hard things need to be said. But how we say it makes all the difference. And though we may realize it, again, you've heard me say this before, but though we may not realize it, how we communicate truth in many ways says a lot about we ourselves and what we believe about the sufficiency of Christ and His Word. More and more I'm coming to the place where I believe that the more 
sufficient we believe Christ and his word to be, the less abrasive we will be. The more we believe in Christ and his word and the more sufficient we believe them to be, the less interested we will be in winning an argument. The more sufficient we believe Christ and his word to be, the more compassionate we will be toward others. And that's exactly what Paul meant when he said we must speak the truth in love in Ephesians 4. Now again, what, we'll talk next week about the last few verses. I believe they are as applicable for us as they were, of course, then. But I want to pair them together with that same similar paragraph in 3 John. So in the, in the meantime, let us receive what has been preached tonight in faith and with faith and love. And let's lay it upon our hearts and practice it in our lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.